Do take your Bibles with me and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It was the famous Lord Acton who wrote that when it comes to great men, we must never start with a favorable presumption that they did or can do no wrong. He goes on to say this, if there is any presumption, it is the other way. Against the holders of power, increasing as the power increases. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Chapters 11 and 12 of Second Samuel stand together as one account. In the 11th chapter, we saw an example of brute power. Here is an absolute monarch, and whatever gifts and graces he has, and he has gifts and graces in heaps, whatever gifts and graces he has are held in suspension for a period. And what you find in chapter 11 is an exercise in the abuse of power and force by an absolute monarch. The key verb in the narrative of chapter 11 is the verb to take. He takes another man's wife. He takes another man's life. What he sees, he snatches. And in quick succession, David sees, summons, uses, and dismisses a woman And then has her husband killed. He is responsible for two capital crimes under the law of Moses. Death for adultery, death for murder. He is responsible for blood guilt. And then the narrative simply continues. Things go back to normal, it seems. And the narrative moves, flows relentlessly, breathlessly, towards its dreadful conclusion. Except for one thing that happens, and it happens at the end of chapter 11, and as we go into chapter 12. This is what happens. All of the verbs that speak about David acting, David doing, come to an end with this statement at the end of chapter 11. The thing that David had done displeased The Lord, literally, was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the end of David's doing. That's the end of David's action. And from chapter 12, verse 1, the action moves. And we ask ourselves the question, if it's evil in the eyes of the Lord, what will God do about David? Chapter 12 contains the answer. What God does is not what we might think God might do. He doesn't nuke him. He he doesn't zap him with some divine energy that turns him into dust, though he deserves that. Instead, God speaks to him. Because the focus of chapter 12 is on what God says. It is on God's Word. And it comes as a shocking surprise to us. Because David does deserve death. He does deserve death. Saul, his predecessor, had sinned and had lost his kingdom. David has sinned 
but doesn't lose his kingdom. That raises a question in my mind. It may raise a problem in your mind. And the answer to this, the, the, the solution to the problem is in what God says. It's in the word of God. And I want you to notice, first of all, that God's word to David is a gracious word. What he failed to reckon with was the all-seeing eye of God. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But then the surprising turn of events, verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan the prophet. It would be very easy to glide over those words as being a narrative bit of information that has no other significance. And yet I have to say that here the Lord is doing something that David has done a lot of in chapter 11. David has been sending messengers here and there. He's been sending for Bathsheba, sending for her husband, sending the death warrant back with her husband, sending for information from the soldiers as to what has happened. David's been doing all the sending. Now in chapter 12, God does the sending. And God sends a prophet to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. I expected the Lord to send something else to David. But he sends the word of God to David. Here is what God always does. You see, here is the good news this is, why, this is why preaching is good news. As long as there's preaching in the church, the judgment has not yet fallen on the world. As long as God sends preachers into the world, there is good news for the world. How can they preach unless they're sent, Paul asks. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's good news. Here's the first indication of grace in the narrative. God is going to show grace towards this man. Not that the word of God is always good when it is delivered to us. The word of God comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. Here, by sending Nathan, God's word is chasing David down. It is hunting him down. It's going to confront him. It's going to shake him up. Now, where there is a true believer, the word of God exposes the true grace that lies hidden beneath. The word of God comes to David as a gracious word. And if God sends a friend into your life or a preacher into your life or a loved one into your life with the good news of what God is saying, you take it like that. You take it as good news to your heart. Well, it's not only a gracious word, it's a wise word. In William Shakespeare's play Hamlet, Prince Hamlet wants to elicit proof of a message that was delivered to him by a ghost. The ghost's message was that it was his uncle, King Claudius, who had been responsible for murdering his father, the former king. Well, Hamlet wants to make sure that that's true, and so he constructs a play. He, he, he writes a play about regicide, about the killing of a king, and he builds this into the story of the play. He wants to see the reaction on the face of his uncle, Claudius, and he says those immortal words. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. How does God's word come to David? Well, it does not come to David the way some of us like to operate. Some of us like to operate on the level of somebody's done something wrong. I just want to 
I, I just want to say it straight to them. This is what you did. And that is not the way you speak to power, especially. In, uh, if you've got a boss who is really difficult, or really, that's not the way to confront. Confronting your boss is not a good thing. Confronting a president or a king or whatever, very often is not the way you do it. You do it the way Nathan did it here. He brings to the king, who is the supreme judge in Israel, a case. And he asks for the king to give a judgment. And it's a very simple story. It's about two men. One man is not interesting at all. The other man is. One man's case is uh, described uh, summarily in one brief sentence. A rich man had very many flocks and herds. This man is so boring, all you can say about him is the rich man had everything. Period. That's the end of that sentence. Four times as much time is spent telling you about the other man, the poor man. What we discover about this poor man was that he did not have flocks and herds. He had nothing, in fact. We're told he had nothing. He owned nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, it says. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat with the family in the kitchen when they went to bed at night in a poor house. Everyone would sleep in the same bed as he, when he went to, night, to sleep at night in his house, well, the little ewe lamb slept with them in bed, and he treated her like a treasured daughter. Now, Nathan is quite clever here, because the word for daughter there in Hebrew is the first syllable of the name Bathsheba. Bath, the word for a daughter and Bath is the beginning of Bathsheba. And, uh, but David doesn't, he, he, you know, he's not clued into that. He's not, he's not seeing that a little association. But Nathan is really playing uh, against the edges of things there. Well, the story goes on. One day the rich man has a guest and the guests need fed. And like many, a rich person, he doesn't want to liquidate his assets. And so we're told that he remembered his next door neighbor had this little lamb that was like a daughter to him. And he takes the lamb and he gives his guest barbecued lamb. Our son-in-law actually gave us barbecued lamb Friday night. He had, uh, it was absolutely delicious. He, 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 he has a great skill in that whole area. And I was thinking about that as we were eating that the other night. And I thought, there's <laughs> a terrible story that I'm going to tell on Sunday morning. And, uh, but when you're a preacher, anything is an illustration. Or just to get a bit of a laugh, really, if you do anything. And usually I get into trouble afterwards when I get home from my wife. But the key, the key to the narrative is this. The key to the narrative is it's the same word that's used in Nathan's little story that you find in chapter 11. The word to take. Just as David had taken Bathsheba, this man took his neighbor's little lamb that was like a daughter to him. What's David's reaction? Well, you, you read it. David was infuriated. He got mad. He got mad religiously because he swore an oath. He said, well, as the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die. He said he, he really should die. Such a hard-hearted individual. But I can't, I can't put him to death because that's not in the law. But what I can do is make sure that he, that he brings retribution four times as much that he gives to the man four times as, as much as he is 
taken as a result. The point of the matter, however, is that the word of God to David was a wise word. Why? Because in telling this story, it reached a part of David that has been hidden in the last chapter. In telling this story, Nathan has reached into the soul of David and touched something that's very important about this man, David. And that is, here is a man who has, at the very root of his personality, even though he may harden it and may do the dreadful things he does in chapter 11, at the root of his personality, here is a sensitive man who has an eye for injustice when he sees it being done by other people. And the story reaches into the soul of David and identifies that sensitivity and draws it out. That's how to speak truth to power. You go for the emotion. You go for the heart. You go for the the basic sense that you know might be in there of what is right and wrong. And Nathan goes for it. It's a wise word of God. Third thing to say about this word is that it was a severe word of God. Because once David's defenses are down, once his emotions are raised, once he's infuriated by this story, now Nathan is ready to deliver the punchline to the story. The punchline is a word of accusation. And I imagine he's a bit nervous. He knows this is a very powerful and very popular king. He knows that he, has, that, that he does not hesitate to get rid of people who stand in his way. He knows that he has a, a whole infrastructure of uh, military and secret police who are serving him. Nathan knows he's putting his life on the line, but he speaks boldly to power. And he changes his approach and he says to David, now without any artistic finesse, now there is just prophetic confrontation and he delivers the punchline. He delivers the punchline last. He delivers it directly. He delivers it boldly. He says to David, you are the man. You are the man. And not only does he deliver a word of accusation, he delivers God's word of denunciation. From now on, David is no longer acting, no longer taking, no longer sending, no longer taking the initiative. David is now passive. He is silent in front of the accusing word of God. He's no longer in control of events. He's no longer manipulating people to his own ends. The word of God is now in control. The word of God now holds the reins. The king has to listen like a child being made to sit before its parents and listen to the lecture. Maybe your parents didn't do that to you. My mother did it to me on a daily basis. He's having to sit and hear. And what does God have to say to David? Now there's a new verb that dominates the story. It's the verb to give. God says to David, I gave and I gave and I gave and I gave. I anointed you king. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you everything that went with the kingdom. I've given and given and given. And if you'd waited, I would have given you more than you can ever ask or imagine. God is a generous giver. God reminds David of what he's been given. And it exposes, you see, that the heart of David's problem in chapter 11 is a problem that lies beneath the the, the surface of many of our lives, and that is a sense of autonomy, a sense in which we can operate and govern our lives. Even those of us who say we're Christians and we formally recite our creeds, we think we can live our lives 
without giving any indication or any recognition to the Word of God. To the Word of God. So God says to him, verse 9, Why have you despised the Word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? You have taken, you have struck rather, you have struck down Uriah, you have taken his wife, you have killed him with a sword, you have struck, taken, killed. That is God's verdict on what David has done. That's God's verdict on what David has done. Now we revisit the story in chapter 11. And as I was saying last time, everybody tries to come up with all kinds of excuses for David. If they try to construct, the, they try to construct some imaginary situation in which the woman is somehow naked on a roof deck in the middle of a city during the day, which is ridiculous and is quite wrong. Then they point to the fact she was beautiful, as if being beautiful is something bad, something wrong. If God's given you God-given beauty, that is no excuse for some man to lust after you or some man to abuse you or some man to use you in whichever way he pleases. Nothing in chapter 11 is used to in any way mitigate David's wrongdoing. And here now the story, the word of God confirms that. Nothing is said about what Bathsheba has or hasn't done. The word of God comes to David. You abused your power. You took, just like the man in the story, took his neighbor's little lamb that was like a daughter to him and killed it and barbecued it and served it. You took and took and took. It was a severe word of God. This was the Lord's use. Uh, uh, this was the Lord's view of what David has done. And there were going to be long-term implications for what David had done. If you look at verses 10 to 12, now the sword will never depart from your house. It was going to be all kinds of ramifications and we'll pick those up in succeeding in succeeding sermons. But this is the beginning of a long, bloody history of the Davidic dynasty until the fall of Jerusalem and the end of that line until the coming of Jesus. It was a severe word. But here is the remarkable and the shocking thing about this chapter. And it is shocking. Here's a man who has sinned with a high hand. He is, he is guilty of blood guilt. He is technically under sentence of death. And you would expect the death penalty from God. And you know that if another human being could not deliver it to the king of Israel, the example of Saul indicates God has his ways to get through to kings. If he wants to get rid of them, let me tell you. So what do we expect to happen is that David will be judged directly. But instead, what we find fourthly is that this word of God is a pardoning word. It's a pardoning word. David, for all his heartlessness and the way he dealt with Bathsheba and Uriah, does not act against the feisty prophet of God. There, underneath the relentless gaze of the word of God, exposing his soul to God and to the prophet, we discover something about David himself. We discover something about grace in David's life, that against the dark background of his profound depravity in the previous episode, here is a man 
who is capable of a considerable degree of moral courage and emotional sensitivity. He is able to face up to the real situation. Here is a man who is willing and able to cast himself on Yahweh's mercy. And the second thing we see is that the gospel is for David. That even though it's late coming, there's repentance and life for David. There is hope for David. That God is a God who will extend mercy to a man like David in spite of his sin. And that should shock you. It should surprise you. It should raise questions in your mind. How can God be just and overlook the behavior of David? I want you to see how this works out. Let's look at it as it plays out. The word comes to him. You are the man. What does David do? First, there's a confession of sin. The confession is straightforward. In Hebrew, there are only two words. Becomes a third and three pairs of words like this. In the story, chapter 11, Bathsheba sent him. Word in Hebrew, two words. I'm pregnant. Then Nathan speaks to the man. Two words in Hebrew. You're the man. Now David responds to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. Two words in Hebrew. We're meant to see the connection. There's the story told. David confesses his sins. I've sinned against the Lord. Secondly, there's David's assurance. Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. How can this be? And then the third aspect of the story is, David's substitute. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, there is a direct connection drawn in the word of God here between you shall not die, your child will die. I want to back up for a moment. I don't want any parent listening to me, whether in this room or on the web, to think for one moment that you can look at the story of David here and apply it indiscriminately to your life or your experience. David, as we see him in the Scripture, is in the Scripture simply because his life is rather unique. He is not like us in many respects. He's not like us. He has been specially set aside. He is the Lord's anointed. He is like a mini-Messiah in his day. He is a forerunner of Jesus. Much that happens in his life happens to him and is in the Bible so that we can understand what God is doing for us in Jesus. And God normally, normally does not kill your child if you sin. That is not the way God normally works with his people. So please don't apply that directly to yourself here. Get the message that's being painted for us. Remember, David is a public figure. He is a Messiah figure. He is the Lord's anointed. Listen to the Lord's critique of David. You have despised my word. The word of the Lord, verse 9. 
You have despised me. Verse 10. You have utterly scorned the Lord. Verse 14. Those words underline the seriousness of David's position. He deserved death. Now that applies to all of us. Because scripture says the wages of sin is death. And we're all going to die for our sins unless Jesus returns. All of us will die physically. All of us were born dead spiritually. And if we don't repent and trust in Jesus, we will all die eternally, separated from God forever. The wages of sin is death. That's why when he's delivering the good news to David, it is this. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die, David. But someone has to die. Because you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. It isn't stretching things to say the way that's laid out in the text suggests that the child died instead of David dying. Well, as the story unfolds, the plot thickens. The child is born, became seriously ill. Look at verse 15. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David's response to this sickness baffles and disturbs his servants. Verse 16 David sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. No matter what they did, they could not comfort him. They couldn't get him to eat or have a shower or get proper rest. He's lying there and he's wailing and crying his heart out to God for his child. And they fear for his life. They fear he's becoming unhinged emotionally. They want to put him on suicide watch. When they hear the child has died, they don't want to tell him. They're afraid of his reaction. They're scared of how he will respond. David is not acting here in his right mind, they think. When eventually the child does die, they're terrified. To tell him David is intuitive, he understands, he realizes what's wrong. He asks a direct question, he gets a direct answer, and then the unusual happens. Immediately, the grieving stops. Immediately, he goes get a shower, gets dressed, goes to the kitchen and finds some food. And his servants come to him and they say, we don't understand what's going on here. When, you, when the child was ill, you were beside yourself. You were overwhelmed with grief. We could see this was genuine. You weren't kidding anybody on. Your heart was going out to that child. You wanted that child to live. You loved that child. With everything that was in you, you loved that child. What's caused the change? And the answer, the answer is that David understood the grace of God. The grace had gotten into his bones, even though he had perhaps suppressed it for that period of disobedience. Grace was in his bones. And so he says to them, while the child was alive, there was hope. I know God well enough to know that I can go to him and ask him for grace for that child. That I could ask him for mercy for that child. And while that child lived, I could besiege God's throne asking for pardon. Asking for the sparing of that child. But now the child's dead. And I know the child is with God. I know the child is in the land, no longer in the land of the dying. The child is in the land of the living And I will go to him. He will not come to me. I will go to him. 
and he rests in the mercy of God. To his child, for taking his child into his immediate presence, sparing that child a lifetime of whatever challenges and hurts and pains that life might have brought, taking that child immediately into the presence of God, into unutterable joy. David understood that. Now, David wrote a psalm about this experience. And instead, we, in case we got the wrong idea or we didn't understand the connection, the statement above the psalm tells us it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And in that psalm, David tells us how he saw what happened in chapter 11. He tells us this. Verse 4 of that psalm. Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David says in that psalm, I realize through this experience that all sin, even sin against people, which is real, is ultimately sin against God who made the people. It's a sin against God who made the people. I have sinned against you. He's saying in that psalm that God's judgment was right. But he also says in that psalm the basis upon which he comes to God. He understands what lies behind it. Now you see, these two chapters, 11 and 12 are preceded by another two chapters that stand together, chapters 9 and 10, and the theme of those two chapters was a Hebrew word, which I taught you, and which you can now say with the very best Hebrew accent. Not. Because somebody said to me at the door last Sunday, they said that they were uh, Israeli, and that they spoke you know, proper Hebrew, and they said that my pronunciation was Scottish Hebrew. So... Well, I suppose that's my pronunciation of American words, like Psalm instead of Sam. Well, we're working on it. Okay. But remember I taught you this word, chesed. It means covenant love, steadfast love. Remember David wants to show it, show that kind of love to an enemy's grandson and an ally's son. Chapter 9 and chapter 10. He tries to show it to one and one receives it. He tries to show it to the other and they reject it. But he wants, he takes initiative in showing chesed to these two parties. Now David realizes, you see, that in that word from Nathan to him, God was doing what he had done when he had initiated the showing of that love towards those two people. God was doing that to him. God was Approaching him with covenant love, with faithfulness and kindness, with steadfast love. So he writes in the psalm, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In other words, he realizes he's approaching God on the basis that God has approached him. With covenant kindness. But there's still a problem. The wages of sin is death. 
Scour the code of Moses and you will find no sacrifice for blood guilt. No sacrifice that you can offer for the sins of adultery or murder. There is no sacrifice that can atone for those sins. David wrestles with it in his psalm. What sacrifice can can avail? How can God show me steadfast love and wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sin if there is no sacrifice for my sin? In Psalm 51, David says this to God, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's kind of a random, random prayer, isn't it? He's thinking of the first time hyssop is used in the Bible. It was in the night of the Passover. He's remembering on that night, every, every oldest son in Egypt was under the divine judgment. He remembers on that first Passover that every eldest son was to die in every household in Egypt, whether Jewish or Egyptian. And God had pronounced good news that was for everybody, whether they were Jewish or Egyptian, that if they killed a lamb, a little lamb, like the little lamb in the story, if they killed a little lamb and took a hyssop and dipped it in the blood of the lamb and anointed it on the doorposts and the frames of the house, that when the angel of death came, he would see the blood and he would pass over those homes and the children would live. They would live. David is praying to God and he says, Oh God, I need a sacrifice for you to wash me and cleanse me. There's a sacrifice that I don't know of. A sacrifice that you know of. A sacrifice like the Passover sacrifice that will be enough for you, that will be enough to appease your wrath and to turn away your judgment. Oh God, on the basis of the sacrifice that you know of, I pray that you would wash me and I would be clean. Cleanse me and I would be whiter than snow. Hyssop reminds us of the substitute in Egypt. The lamb died for the boy. And connecting up the stories, you see, in his experience, David is reaching out for a truth that will only ever become absolutely clear to us. When a young man, who was both David's son, several times removed, David's son of David's line, and God's son combined, is hanging on a cross, bleeding, And they lift up a hyssop with a sponge tied to it and they press it against him. And the hyssop to which David referred points in the direction of David's son, God's son, who is also God's lamb. 
the Lamb of God that can carry away sin, even the sins of blood guilt, and in its turn wash us clean, cleanse us thoroughly, and enable us to be in the presence of God. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is God provides the son who dies, his own son, David's son, human and divine in one person, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Shocking news. Good news. Good news for you. Good news for me. That when we stand before God, it's all dealt with, all done. All accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is in the horrific elements of this very earthy human story and in the remarkable way you dealt with David which seems to go against all our senses of justice. You've done for him what you did for us. Because we have despised your word. We have despised you. We have scorned the God of Israel. And we deserve eternal death. The wages of sin is death. But instead, David's son and your only son, the Lamb has been slain for us. And so you're prepared to wash us clean Thank you for that. We pray that you would please help us to reach out in faith to him. Trust him alone. For our salvation, we pray. In Jesus' strong name. Amen.